Uh, so good morning to everybody. Happy New Year to everyone. Happy New Year to you folks that are joining us on Zoom. I know we have a lot of folks that are sick or, or not feeling well or traveling, so glad to have you guys with us virtually. Um, today's passage, I think, is the perfect passage, and I, again, I didn't plan this. This is just how it worked out in the, the, the uh, book of Acts, but this is the perfect passage for the beginning of a new year. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because I, you know, I haven't been given supernatural knowledge by God on this or anything, but I can guarantee you that the one thing that we're all going to face as Christians this year is temptation to sin. If you think you're going to get through 2022 without any temptation to sin, uh, then, then we need to talk. Um, but something we're all going to face is temptation to sin, and that's why I think today's passage is perfect as we launch into a new calendar year. So, Go ahead and grab a Bible or your Bible app and turn with me to Acts chapter 5, the first 11 verses. Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11. Now, last week we we looked at the unity of the Spirit-filled Christian community. And as we read those verses about the unity of the first church in Jerusalem, it was a compelling vision of the unity that can and does exist between Christians that oftentimes we uh, don't show the world. The, the nature of that unity as often uh, or as we should. And yet we see in those verses this incredible unity. They were one heart, one mind. Uh, they were united in that way. So we saw that last week. And then next week we're going to see some of the Spirit-empowered miracles surrounding the church in Jerusalem and happening in their midst. So today's passage is sandwiched between Spirit-empowered unity and Spirit-empowered ministry and witness and miracles, and right smack in the middle of that context of this powerful ministry at work, this unity, this peace, this purity that's existing in the church, we find the one thing that could derail everything that I just mentioned, and that one thing is sin. It's sin that is unrepented of, unaddressed. That's the thing that could derail everything. Uh, A few days ago, my mom sent me this article that she got while she was traveling. It was from uh, the the 2022 edition of the Old Farmer's Almanac. If you've ever seen the Old Farmer's Almanac, it's been around forever. But they have interesting articles from time to time. And according to the Almanac, a Boston newspaper, it didn't specify which one, but a Boston newspaper from 1813, that's more than 200 years ago, featured the first recorded use of the phrase New Year Resolution. So you wonder where that phrase comes from? That's where it comes from, a Boston newspaper from over 200 years ago. And here's what the author of that article said. And I think the quote is coming up here. He said, And yet, I believe there are multitudes of people accustomed to receive injunctions of New Year Resolutions. There it is. And then he goes on to describe these multitudes of people who will sin all the month of December with a serious determination of beginning the new year with new resolutions and new behavior and with the full belief that they shall thus expiate, that's a theological word that means to atone for, that they will thus expiate and wipe away all their former faults. So in other words... The phrase New Year Resolution that we bandy about so much in our day and age uh, was coined in the context of a serious determination to deal with sin. 
Now that quote in its context, that's not the gospel, okay? That's not how we deal with sin as Christians. We deal with sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He paid to atone for our sins, okay? However, it's interesting to note that this this concept of New Year resolutions, or at least that phrase, was coined in the context of a serious determination to escape from sins, to wipe away our former faults and start anew. But, but sadly, if you fast forward, uh, Gallup poll has done a lot of surveys on top 10 New Year's resolutions. And as you move through the decades of our country, uh, you know what drops off? It's actually nowhere on the top 10 now. Anything mentioning anything about spirituality, religion, it used to be, you know, going to church more back in the 40s. I think 1947, like the sixth out of the top 10 was like, be more religious, go to church more, you know. Uh, and now it's just, there's nothing spiritual on there. It's all like self, well-being, personal goals, things like this, okay. But they've done all these things. And so as you track it over the decades, sin isn't really talked about much anymore by Americans. As we look at a new calendar year before us, very few of us are thinking in terms of sin. And that's a sad fact, but it, you can track it. I mean, that's what the secularization of society does, right? It's just, it's, it's part of that process. However, we might say we talk about sin in the context of New Year resolutions if we redefine sin as simply not striving or not achieving our personal goals of losing weight or getting organized or saving more money or getting in shape physically or smoking less or spending more time with family. If we can redefine sin as not accomplishing those things or striving towards them, then we do talk about sin. But this idea, for most Americans, this this biblical concept of sin as a grave offense against an infinitely holy and just God is the only word I can think about it is it's passe. It's outdated in our cultural context now. And this is exactly why I think today's passage is, is for many modern readers, one of the most difficult passages in the book of Acts. Because here we see God judging what we might consider a small sin. And, you, and we'll see that as we get into the passage. But we see God judging what we might pass off as a small sin that could be just be swept under the rug. And God does that. He judges that sin directly and immediately and with grave consequences. So the main point of today's passage is this. The main point of today's passage is that sin is always serious. And so we must take it seriously. Certainly as Christians, as Christ followers. Sin is always serious. There are no respectable sins. I love that book title. It's called Respectable Sins. It talks about all the sins that we sort of just pass off as, oh, we're just Americans. Or we're just, you know, uh, we're, we're just uh, uh, leaders. We're just really effective. So we can be mean or greedy or proud or arrogant or all these things. Uh, the idea is that there are no respectable sins in that sense. All sin is serious, so we must take it seriously. And the way that we do this in the church, the way that we take sin seriously in the church is by confronting sin and correcting sinners. Confronting sin and correcting sinners. And that's exactly what we see in the first and second halves of our passage. So first, we must confront sin in the church. 
Like, like we don't get the option to just sweep sin under the rug, no matter how small or insignificant we think it is. Uh, we need to confront sin. Uh, so to help us better understand this, instead of just reading our passage today, I'm going to back up and I'm going to read starting at the end of chapter 4 because I want you to see what's at stake with regard to sin. What is it that sin could derail? Why is sin so serious? And uh, I'll back up to chapter 4, verse 32. It says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So unity, spirit-empowered unity. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each to the extent that any had need. And then we see two examples, one positive, one negative, of what it's talking about. Verse 36, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, owned a tract of land. So he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, which by the way, the Hebrew root of that, Hananiah, means the Lord is gracious. There's some irony in that. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, which means beautiful, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the proceeds for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so here again, we have the positive example of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, selling his land and giving all the proceeds to the apostles to be distributed to the needy people in the church, okay? And then we have this negative example of Ananias and Sapphira who want that same level of recognition of being incredibly generous like Barnabas, only without the same level of self-sacrifice, without the same level of generosity, but they want to be recognized as generous. So what do they do? They hatch a scheme to keep back. And that word is, is, it's like to embezzle. It's like to embezzle someone else's money. And it goes all the way back to, which we can't nerd out on this and go too, too far down this rabbit hole, but it goes all the way back to the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7 when they're moving into the promised land and Achan takes some of the silver that's been dedicated to the Lord from Jericho after Jericho is conquered. And that same, the, the Greek translation of, of Joshua 7 is that same word. It's to keep back. It's to, to, to hold a portion that, that is not rightly yours to keep, that is dedicated to the Lord, okay? So they had this scheme to keep back some of the money which had been dedicated to Christ and his church. So at this early stage in life of the church, and this is important because we see similar judgment miracles uh, in the early life of Israel, remember Nadab and Abihu who came and put the strange fire and they were immediately died. Uh, Achan, another story where it's the right as they're coming to the promised land, he's 
keep, you know, embezzling funds from the Lord, from the tabernacle, and he dies and his family. So there are these judgment miracles at the earliest stages of Israel. There's also now, we see in the book of Acts, this same type of judgment miracle in the early years, the early stages of the church. And that it has an instructive tone to it. It's supposed to teach the church, both back then and now, the, how serious sin is, as we'll see as we go along. So, the Christian community needed to learn to take sin seriously. So God apparently gives supernatural knowledge of Ananias' sin to Peter. They thought it was between them, you know, husband and wife. No one's going to know. We're just going to do this. But God apparently gives supernatural uh, knowledge of it to Peter. And Peter is a leader in the church. So it says in verse 3, um, it says, But Peter said, Ananias, the Lord is gracious. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So Peter sort of reframes things in light of what's true. So interestingly, the Christian community is, is, is said to be filled with what in the book of Acts? The Holy Spirit, right? So the Christian community is supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why there's spirit-empowered unity amongst them. That's why there's spirit-empowered ministry and miracles happening amongst them. That's why they have the spirit-emboldened witness to the lost world around them. So they're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But now we see in this verse that, that one of the professing Christians in that community, his heart is not filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. His heart is filled or controlled by Satan. That's what the filling of his heart is referring to, control by Satan. And so you've you got to look at it like, like think in military terms, right? Defensibility, right? Defending a fortress, so to speak. You get everyone's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then there's this one. It's like Judas, right? There's this one who provides a foothold in their heart for Satan, the great enemy. So now, all of a sudden, there's this satanic foothold in the community of Christ followers, and that foothold is held by what the New Testament, who the New Testament calls the father of lies. So what do you think is going to happen when Ananias allows this satanic foothold for the father of lies to influence and control him? What's going to be produced out of a life like that, a heart filled by, by Satan? Well, it's lies and deception, right? So, so lies and deception becomes the result of allowing this foothold spiritually. And it wasn't just lying to the church, but it's also lying to the Holy Spirit who filled the church. We don't just sin against people. We don't just lie to people. We sin against God. We, we lie to God. And specifically in the context of the early church, Peter wants to make that point clear. It's, you're, just not, you're not just lying to us and the leaders of the church and others, but you're also lying to the Holy Spirit who fills the church. In other words, you're lying to God himself. He brings it right back to that vertical relationship with God. And it's important to understand that Ananias was under no compulsion uh, by the church to dedicate the proceeds of this real estate transaction. Do you understand that? That's why he, he says in verse 4, like, while it was unsold, was it not yours? Even after it was sold, did you not have the, the ability to decide what was going to be given over to the church? You didn't have to give any of it. You were under no compulsion to do this. 
So that's important. They weren't forcing him to give his money away to, to the needy, right? This was an act of, of grace and mercy, or it was supposed to be. But Ananias, he wanted to be praised for this incredible generosity that he saw in, in people like Barnabas. He wants to be praised in such a way, even though he wasn't willing to trust God for his own financial needs. He wants to be seen as, as uh, super uh, generous and willing to sacrifice But at the same time, he's not willing on the flip side to trust God with his own finances and to trust God's generosity and God's provision, which is interesting. I like how the New American Commentary describes Ananias. It says, his heart was divided. A divided heart is so dangerous. And this is how it it describes his divided heart. It said he had one foot in the community, that's the community of Christ followers, and the other still groping for a toehold on the worldly security of earthly possessions. I love that. Still groping for a toehold, trying to find security out there with worldly earthly possessions, right? But having one foot in the church and one foot out there to lie, listen to this, to lie with regard to the sharing was to belie or belie the unity of the community. That's a word we don't use much anymore, but belie means to uh, disguise something that's true or to um, contradict something that's true or to uh, uh, basically to act as though something's false, okay? So it says to lie with regard to the sharing was to belie the unity of the community, to disguise or to contradict the unity of the community, I can't trust these people to meet my needs. I can't trust God to work through these people around me and my church family to meet my needs. You see how it belies that that fact? And then it goes on to say, to belie the spirit that undergirded that unity. The Holy Spirit can't take care of me. The Holy Spirit can't provide for my needs, right? And so that act of lying about the sharing belies the unity and the spirit who provides that unity. So those selfish desires, they made Ananias an easy target for Satan, who, by the way, can I tell you something about Satan, what we learn from him in Scripture? And by the way, I completely, absolutely believe that there is an actual being who is Satan, who's the great enemy of God and Christ in the church. And he tries very, very hard in the ministry of Jesus. It was through Judas. He tried the external attacks. The external attacks didn't work, so he got internal and and posed an internal threat by filling the heart of one of the twelve Judas who wanted to take money to buy a field. There's a lot of connections that Luke makes between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But the point is, is that when Satan can't get you with the external attacks, he's going to come inside. He's going to find a divided heart. And he's really good at convincing us that we can and should have our cake and eat it too. He's a master at it. Go back to the Garden of Eden with, with, uh, with Eve and all throughout. But you should have your cake and eat it too. Why would you have cake and not be able to eat it? Why would you want to eat cake and not have cake? Like this is what Satan does with a divided heart. But God wanted to impress upon his people the importance of taking sin seriously. And how serious it was that we might call a small sin, but it reveals a divided heart. It reveals a willingness to lie to the Holy Spirit a willingness to belie the reality of who God is and what he's doing, who Christ is and what he's doing in our midst. So God judges Ananias. 
So look at verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias collapsed and died. And great fear came over all who heard about it. The young men got up and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. So even as we read about God's justice, and this is what is so shocking to us as modern readers, modern American readers, we're like, oh, that's harsh. That's pretty harsh, God. You know, I mean, I, I think that you can be honest, right? But, but, but even as we read about God's justice in judging Ananias, we also have to understand that his grace was operative simultaneously at the same time his grace was operative to help others understand the serious seriousness of sin you think god arbitrarily harshly judges people immediately and directly no at the very same time in fact ananias's name that means the lord is gracious this says nothing about his eternal destiny this says nothing about him losing his salvation if he was truly a follower of jesus does it no it says that his physical life was taken away from him And so at this point, is he able to uh, depend upon his own works for salvation, for justification before God? No. So even this act reminds us that the Lord is gracious and that we only can depend upon the grace of our Lord for salvation. That's an important thing to note. But let me tell you how else God's grace is evident in this passage. It's that this doesn't happen off in a corner. This happens right smack dab in the middle of the church community. Why? so that it can warn other people about the seriousness of sin, so that it can show other people how holy and righteous and just our God is and how we need to rightfully fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom, right? Not cringing as though he's going to strike us with lightning at any arbitrarily capriciously, but having a healthy respect and reverent awe for our God. And, and so in that sense, his grace was abundant. So just to recap this first part of the passage, we must confront sin in the church because it ultimately makes us, on the one hand, it makes us the allies of God's great enemy and ours too, but also because it, at the very same time, is making us allies of Satan, it makes us antagonists of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we have to address sin. Yeah, I was thinking about this. This week, it's hard to believe, and I'm glad Dad's here, but this week, one year ago, Dad was, was going into surgery for his laryngectomy. And uh, I can't believe that was just a year ago. Um, but as you guys know, most of you know, uh, Dad had battled uh, laryngeal cancer in 2018, and they had uh, uh, killed that tumor with heavy doses of chemo and radiation, and, and he was clear. And then three years later, two and a half years later, uh, a tumor came back on the other side of his larynx. And at that point, uh, there was only one option for treatment. And that option was surgical. It was the removal of his larynx. A laryngectomy is what it's called. And, uh, and the ENT, uh, he's a great guy. Uh, Dr. Whitehead is just amazing. But he was so quick. Remember this, Dad? He was so quick in making the decision to surgically remove the whole voice box. I mean, we found out early December that, the, that a tumor was back on the other side of the larynx, and he was just like, we're going to get you in as soon as possible. We're going to remove the whole voice box. Uh, I mean, he didn't mess around at all. And during the procedure, they didn't just remove his larynx. They also removed a suspicious part of one of his lobes on his thyroid. Uh, they did a, a, whatever you call that, a thyroidectomy or whatever, uh, whatever it is. And then they also removed a whole bunch of lymph nodes that were in the area. 
they didn't want to take any chances of leaving any cancer anywhere in his throat, okay? So, and we're still dealing with the implications of that aggressive treatment. I mean, the, the, the lymph drainage and, and having to work on that and the, having to do esophageal speech. And I mean, all these things were repercussions or consequences of the incredibly aggressive treatment for cancer. But in the long run, I think dad and I would both agree it was absolutely worth it, even having to deal with some of those after effects, right? Um, it was worth it because the stakes were too high to do anything less than the most aggressive form of treatment. And I got to tell you, folks, willful sins in the church. Now, there's going to be times where we speak in anger or in haste to somebody, and, and then that person on the receiving end can choose to just forgive without bringing it up. Hey, they were having a hard day. They were under a lot of stress. Love covers a multitude of sins. We're just going to let that one go. But when there's willful sin in the church, when there's an unrepentant, divided heart, somebody that's not willing to deal with their sin, confess it, repent of it, folks, that is, that is not unlike cancer cells in our individual bodies. Willful sin in the church body is like cancer cells in our human bodies. Left untreated, sins like that will prove fatal to the life and ministry of the church. It will go, uh, what's the term? Metastatic? Uh, these are not benign, these willful sins, and they will prove fatal to our ministry and our purity and our unity as a church. Our spirit-empowered ministry that we are called to in the Great Commission, our spirit-emboldened witness, the Holy Spirit giving us the ability to share this great and glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ dying for our sins, rising again, offering us forgiveness and eternal life through Christ, all of that, our spirit-enabled unity and fellowship, our Christ-honoring purity and holiness in the church will all eventually be undone if the members of our body harbor hidden sins and in doing so accomplish the schemes of the devil against us and contradict the reality of the Holy Spirit among us. Therefore, in order to take sin seriously in the church, we must confront it quickly and with gravity and seriousness and urgency. So, are we supposed to put confessing Christians to death when they try to cover up their willful sins? <laughs> okay, no. The, the answer is no, okay? Uh, uh, the power of the sword was given to human government in Scripture, right? But the power of the sword is not given to Christians to just, you know, take each other out when they commit willful sins. So, of course not. But can Christ choose to remove someone from this life due to unrepentant sin? Does God have the authority to end someone's visit? Does that mean every time somebody unexpectedly dies that it was because of unrepentant sin? No, no, don't be like Job's friends. Be like, whoa, I can't believe they died so suddenly. They must have had unrepentant sin. That's not the case every time. However, can God remove someone due to the sin in their life and the sin that's affecting the unity and purity and, and spirit-empowered ministry of the church? Absolutely. You, you better believe it. That's what we see in today's passage. But God, folks, God is incredibly patient and gracious. His patience and mercy and grace is unfathomable. You, you can't wrap your head around how patient and gracious our God is. And, and let me just 
point something out that's obvious here. We tend to get caught up on how harsh God seems to be with Ananias and Sapphira. But how often throughout church history, how often in your life, how often in the life of Wayside has God immediately ended someone's physical life because of unrepentant sin or hidden sin? Not often. This was an example, but that is not, that's pretty seemingly rare in the history of the church. So then, as the church... How can we take sin seriously in the church knowing that God rarely condemns us to immediate death for our sins? What happens if he doesn't condemn us to immediate death for our sins? It means that we're still in our sin and we still have to do something about it. Okay, so what are we to do about it? Well, two things. One is we can ruthlessly confront our own sins. We need to be ruthless with the sin in our lives. But we can also lovingly confront the sins of others in the church. It's not just we can, we should, we must do that as well. In today's passage, Peter has this supernatural knowledge of Ananias' sin. How often do you get that? Not, again, not often, right? Sort of a special situation in this context. So most of the time, we can at least for a little while, we can hide our sins. And we're actually really good at it. I know I am. Right? I've been honing it my entire life, the ability to cover up my sin and act like I don't have sin. Okay, right. So, so at least for a little while, by God's grace, sometimes our sin is exposed. And that is God's grace. If your sin is exposed, embrace it as God's grace. Okay, And we're going to see that with Sapphira here in a second. But, but because we can keep sin hidden from others so well, by the way, do we ever hide our sin from God? No. He sees it all. All that stuff you lock up in that downstairs basement closet, it's totally visible to him. Okay? So let's not kid ourselves. Um, but because we can hide it from others, that's why we have to ruthlessly confront our own hidden sin by confessing it to God, confessing it to other Christians, and asking for help from God and from other Christians in the face of temptation. We need each other, guys, and we need God's help in this. But sometimes, People in the church don't want to confess and repent their sin. We see it in Scripture. We see it in our own churches today, okay? And it can be true of all of us. We can all get to this point where we're unwilling to say, yes, sin is sin. Call a spade a spade. So what happens then? This is why it is so important for every church body, every local church, to embrace what I would call a biblical understanding and practice of church discipline. Do we like to talk about church discipline? No. I'm, you know, I'm a grumpy pastor talking about church discipline. No, like this is, church discipline is God's grace to sinners. And that's why we need to embrace it and not act as though church discipline is some foreign concept. Like it needs to be alive and well in our churches today, both formative and corrective church discipline. But church discipline is how we confront sin in the church. And it almost always begins how? Go right back to Matthew chapter 18. It almost always begins with one Christian coming alongside her sister in Christ, coming alongside his brother in Christ, and helping them see their sin. And you know what? Most of the time, it should stop at that level. Now, there are additional levels we can talk about some other time, but, but that's usually where it begins and hopefully where it ends. And so that leads to the second way in which we can take sin seriously, and that's related to confronting sin. We must correct sinners in the church. 
Me too. All of us. Like, if we fall into sin, we need correction. That is God's grace. And I'm going to read uh, verses 7 through 11. And I want you to just listen to it because it, and, and Luke is very intentional about this. Verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 11 tightly parallel each other. The story of Ananias and the story of his wife, Sapphira, but there are some key differences. So perk your ears up and see if you can find the differences here between these confrontations Peter has with this husband and wife. Starting in verse 7. Now an interval of about three hours elapsed, that is from Ananias immediately dying and being taken out. And we don't know why and where she was and if somebody had to go get her and all this stuff. Like Luke doesn't include any of that. That's fine. But an interval of about three hours elapsed, and his wife came in, Sapphira, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for this price. Now, it's actually not, it doesn't specify which price he mentioned, but given the context, it seems like he's asking the fictitious price. Tell me, did you sell the land for this price? Really? And she said, yes, for that price. And then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? That's like uh, wilderness wandering language from Exodus, okay? Why have you agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she collapsed at his feet and died. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And then it says this in verse 11, our last verse. It says, And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard about these things. So did you guys catch the difference? Did you all catch the difference? Peter immediately accuses Ananias. He immediately says, this is what you did. Here's the judgment. From God. He announces God's curse, God's judgment on Ananias. But he gives Sapphira an opportunity to repent. Look at that. So, given the context of the verse, it, it, it seems like even though he asks her, he gives her the opportunity to repent, she doesn't know what happened to her husband. She now has an, she has an option. She has to make a decision. Am I going to stick with my husband's story, his scheming? Or am I going to part with my husband, which is okay, by the way, if you're parting because you want to follow Jesus? So am I going to divulge the scheme to the church leader, to Peter? And what does she choose? She sticks with her, her made-up story, and she sticks with the price they'd come up. She fails to confess her sinful scheme. And think about this. She had joined in the conspiracy with her husband, and now she joins her husband in judgment as well. And uh, one scholar pointed this out, and <laughs> we should not miss the irony in the fact that our passage begins with Sapphira laying her partial gift at what? At the feet of the apostles. And our passage ends with her laying down her total life at the feet of an apostle. And that irony is not meant to be missed on us. So Peter gave Sapphira this chance to confess and repent for the sake of correcting her wayward heart. And her heart was both deceived and deceiving others. That's what a divided heart does. That's what happens when Satan gets a foothold in our hearts. We're deceived, but at the same time, we deceive others in our self-deceit. And he gave her a chance to, 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 to turn away, to repent. But as I mentioned earlier, even in God's judgment of Sapphira, we see this purifying effect on the rest of the church community. It said great fear came over the whole church. 
and over all who heard about these things. So not just the church, but even others outside the church have this, this, this healthy, reverential awe, awe full, full of awe, fear of God because of this judgment. And I really like how Dr. Daryl Box speaks to this in his commentary on Acts. Listen, listen to this. It's such a good quote to kind of sum up this passage. But he says, This judgment indicates how serious sin is to God and how gracious God is in often deferring such judgment. Again, this doesn't happen normally when you sin. You don't immediately die, okay? So he talks about how serious sin is to God and at the same time how gracious God is is in often deferring such judgment. Most sin is not treated so harshly. But at this early stage, that is early stage in the church, such a divine act serves to remind the community of its call to holiness. Does God care about our holiness? You better believe it. And its loyalty to God. God sees and knows all, he writes. Sin is dealt with directly, and the resulting fear that the judgment creates is exactly what the passage seeks to engender. Respect for God and for righteousness, as well as a recognition that sin is destructive and dangerous. So if we're going to take sin seriously, then we must correct sinners in the church. Folks, hear me on this. With a heart of love. If you're just like, oh, I can't wait to correct people, like that's the wrong attitude, okay? And if you got church leaders in a church that are like, that's their heart, is like, oh, I just love correcting everybody, they're probably self-righteous themselves and probably need their fellow elders to, to come alongside them in that. But the point is, we are to correct people with a heart of love, with a respect for God's holiness and our call, our holy calling, and with a desire to see more and more people experiencing salvation from sin through faith in Jesus. That should be our hard attitude in correction. So over the past several months, uh, we, this goes all the way back to our church series we did in, in uh, September, October. But we have been emphasizing the importance of being a committed member of a local church. One of the reasons for this, this idea of committed church membership, one of the the reasons that's so important is the fact that we need to be accountable to others for the purpose of spiritual correction. If you have made no commitment to the other people in your church, is it even your church? Or are you just somebody that visits once in a while, sits on the back row, doesn't have any relationships, hasn't given any formal... any sort of formal affirmation of accountability. You haven't accepted accountability from your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ church leadership. That's a problem. And so one of the reasons we need to be committed members is for this purpose of spiritual correction. And I know you're thinking like, oh, goody, (laughs) I want to join a church and be committed so I can be corrected if need be. Folks, that is exactly what we need. And again, I'll say it over and over again. It is God's grace to have those sorts of relationships, to be a part of that kind of a church community. We all need to open ourselves up to the possibility of church discipline in case we stray off the path. And who in here will never stray off the path? Who in here will not fall to temptation? Who in here inherently has the ability to remain sinless? Nobody, including me. And that's why we need it. And I love this about our Wayside Constitution um, I just emailed it out the other day, and so I got to look at it with fresh eyes. And uh, we have several sections in there 
on membership and leadership in our Constitution that emphasize the importance of accountability and correction for members, for elders, and for non-elder leaders and teachers in the church. I love that that's in there. And it's so interesting. In the case of elders and other leaders and teachers in the church, people have positions of authority and teaching and leadership, group leaders, teachers, etc., The removal of leadership and teaching responsibilities is prescribed in our Constitution for, and this is the wording, for conduct that is detrimental to the ministry, unity, peace, or purity of the church. Now, in the case of terminating someone's membership, so that's taking away like a leadership or a teaching responsibility, okay? But you're still a member of the church. You're just not going to be in this position of leadership or teaching. But when it comes to terminating someone's membership at Wayside, that can only be done if a person remains unrepentant. Somebody doesn't make a mistake and we go, you're out of here, you nasty, wicked sinner. No, right? That's why church discipline, that's why correction is so important. We come alongside people in their sin so that they can confess and repent and be restored to fellowship with God and fellowship with others in Christ. That's God's grace. But if people remain unrepentant, the only solution, the only prescription we have left is to, as Paul put it, he he says, I turn them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. What he's saying is you set them outside the fellowship of the church. You say, listen, you're not acting like a Christ follower. So we're going to set you outside the church, outside the Christian community. And, And the hope there is not to shame people although we are ashamed of our sin, but the hope is in doing so, people will sober up to the reality of the sin in their life when they're excommunicated from church fellowship, church community. That doesn't mean a whole lot to us today because a lot of us are pretty self-sufficient, but when you're living under persecution in the first century in Jerusalem, that means a whole lot because you've already been disinherited by your family, shunned by your vocation, all the people that work as silversmiths in your trade. You've been kicked out of society And now you're being set outside the church. And the idea is that you would sober up to the reality of your sin and turn back to the Lord and and be not repent and not just be restored to God in fellowship, but also be restored to God's people in fellowship in the church. Okay, that's scripturally what it's supposed to look like. But that's if somebody remains unrepentant. And this is a really important distinction because the immediate removal of a leadership or teaching position has twofold purpose. One is... You're helping that leader or teacher understand the seriousness of their sin. And by the way, even in 1 Timothy, we see elders coming under church discipline. That's important. Church leaders need to be under that same accountability. But you're supposed to help them understand the seriousness of their sin. But also for teachers and leaders, you're trying to protect the rest of the flock from their influence, from the negative influence of those individuals. And then the eventual removal from membership only happens when a person refuses to repent of their sin. And it's always done as a corrective measure with what? With the hope of repentance and eventual restoration of fellowship in the local church. Which, guys, sadly, a lot of times what happens is somebody comes under church discipline and what happens? They just go to some other church down the road. I mean, there's like a church in every corner. They just go somewhere else to kind of scratch that religion itch. And nobody asks, hey, where are you from? Are you under church discipline? No. It's just like, whatever. I'm done with you people. I'm going to move on. And that's sad. Um, and I hate it. But 
you do it with the hope of restoration and repentance, okay? All right. Uh, so these processes of correcting sinners in the church is one way that we can take sin seriously. So my personal application is real simple on this. It's for all of us that we would make ourselves accountable to other brothers and sisters in the church because this, should, this is like a priority for the new year. Make yourself accountable to, to brothers and sisters in the church. Like, like, and, and how can you do that? Okay, let's talk about that. If God has led you to this local church in particular, then I would encourage you to become a committed member. That's just simply like sharing your faith with an elder, signing the membership form, which is one page. It's real simple. It's just saying, I commit to y'all, y'all commit to me, and and be a member. Let's celebrate that. But then what we're going to do on the 30th is it's a commitment renewal ceremony. It's like renewing your vows in marriage. You don't have to get divorced to renew your vows. You just renew your vows. It's a reminder of, 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 of what we're standing for in this relationship. So as, as, um, as waysiders, we're going to do this on the 30th. We're going to ring in the new year with a renewal ceremony that's designed to remind us that we are members of one another in the body, in this local body, and that we are in this thing together for better or for worse, that we are inextricably bound up with each other in this local church. And we're going to celebrate that fact and renew that commitment on the 30th. Okay. So as the surrounding society, I talked about this at the beginning, dismisses sin altogether. That's a dirty word in our society. You start talking about sin. Now you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, uh, absolute standards of moral right and wrong. And that's the, our society is done with all that. They don't want to hear that. Okay. But as our society dismisses sin altogether, folks, what does that give us? A real opportunity to shine brightly in this dark world as stars in the darkness, as Scripture puts it, by taking sin seriously so that others can clearly see the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church, the Holy Spirit and His influence in the church, and the power of the gospel that's at work in our lives, in us and through us and in our church body, our relationships. The answer is not to secularize the church and do away with sin categories. The answer is to be the holy people that God has called us to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. And and then we will look so distinct from the surrounding culture, the surrounding society, that it will compel those who want something, who, who realize their need for God, who realize their separation from God, who recognize their sin, and they're going to come and they're going to hear that good news of the gospel and respond. But if you just make the church look like the culture and do away with sin in the church, you've done a great disservice to society. So as Christians, we don't have to, as I read earlier, adopt a serious determination of beginning the new year with new resolutions and new behavior and with the full belief that they shall thus expiate and wipe away all our formal faults. Okay, again, that's not the gospel. We need to be more religious this year. We need to go to church more, you know, like there are some things we need to do, but that's not the big point here, okay? Instead, we must embrace the seriousness of sin. This is a New Year's resolution for all of us. We must embrace the seriousness of sin so that we can embrace the fact that God has dealt decisively with our sin once and for all by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sin so that we can then walk into this new year of God's grace with new life, with absolute forgiveness, 
and freedom from sin and its enslaving power in our lives. And by God's grace, that is exactly what we are going to do together this year. Um, Next week, after dealing with this internal threat of unrepentant sin, we're going to see the church continue its spirit-empowered ministry. We're going to see more miracles, spirit-empowered ministry at work. But that's also going to attract repeated external threats from the jealous religious leaders in Jerusalem. So we're going to see more external attacks as they decisively take care of this internal threat. And we'll, we'll turn to that next week. So let me pray for us. Please bow your heads.